0: If you have a a copy of God's Word, could you take it and turn to Esther chapter 4? Esther chapter 4. Much of life can be explained with the words cause and effect. Because something happened, then this was the effect. I actually think a lot of the book of Esther can be kind of understood in that way. There are certain causes that lead to certain effects. We've been walking through this uh, month, the book of Esther. So initially, I'm more introduced to a powerful man who is the king. And when the king wants to show off his power, the effect is a six-month party. And the king in this six-month party gets drunk And the effect of that is he wants to parade his wealth and parade his wife in front of everybody. Vashti, his wife, says, I'm not going to be a part of that. And the effect of that is he just gets a new one, a new wife. We have a contest that Esther is involved in. And the effect of Esther being involved in this contest is she wins. She's chosen to be the next queen In Esther chapter 3, we looked at this last week, there is this vendetta, it seems to come out of nowhere, but this personal vendetta that a man Haman has. And the effect of that personal vendetta is a decree that goes out to eliminate a whole ethnicity, eliminate all the Jews in the empire everywhere. It's cause and effect, and it could be just as simply as explained as that, some collision course of A king and Haman and Mordecai and Esther. But it's not just random cause and random effect. There is a bigger story being told if we have eyes to see it. Something more is going on. Everything that is written leaves us recognizing that something more is going on than just mere cause and effect. And I want us to listen this morning. So Trevor is going to come up and read Esther chapter 4 for us, and a decree has just gone out ordering the destruction of the Jews. And now let's listen as God is working even through these causes and effects.
1: Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to, to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, so that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, "'Know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, "'there is but one law to be put to death, "'except to the one whom the king holds out, the golden scepter, so that he may live. "'But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days.' "'And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. "'Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, "'Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews.' For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. So is it, against, it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him.
0: Thank you, Trevor. A story like we've just heard invites us, and I think even beyond that, calls us to respond. So when we're reading the book of Esther, I think it's important that we not only just receive information or be enlightened by his story, but we actually take God's word and look like, God, what, what do you want me to learn from this? How do you want me to respond? I think we ought to press on a little bit more. I want us to take aspects of this story this morning that we just heard, and I want us to listen to those, but let's press a little further to see, like, what does God want for our lives, particularly as we understand this story? It is, as Trevor was reading, chapter 4 begins with a season of deep mourning. Deep mourning of God's people. Mordecai visibly mourns. The people mourn. So in verses 1 to 3, the clothes, the appearance of Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. He is grieving. So I, we don't have a custom exactly like that, other than maybe you wear black when you're mourning, but, but it's not exactly the same. So this would be, everybody would know he is a, he is a person who is experiencing deep grief. His physical presence, he goes to the middle of the city. He's not hiding. He is going public with his grief. His verbal response, he's crying out. It says he cries out in a loud and a bitter way. And he goes to the king's gate. He's not able to go in because of the laws, but others are feeling this grief as well. You read about uh, fasting and weeping and mourning. Notably missing from this is prayer. Prayer. I mean, may, maybe it's implied in the fasting, but it's not, it's not mentioned. And this is just like Esther, where there are a thousand things that aren't quite mentioned, even though we wonder, surely this would be present. We see this upheaval of emotion in this story. But again, here's a question. I don't want us just to live in Esther's world. I want to come into our world and ask a question, and that is, what should it look like? What should it look like when a christian grieves what should it look like when a christian is sorrowful is that even allowed or is the only advice when a christian is grieving to just trust god it'll all get better i don't think that's sufficient i don't think that does justice to so much of scripture but what does it look like when when we are sorrowful, what does biblical lament look like? What should Christians do with grief? What should Christians do with hurt and with physical pain? What should we do with change that we never asked for? What should we do with desperate times? What should we do with those anniversaries that come and they remind us of something bitter and something hard and something difficult? What should we do I say we, we often don't seem to know how to do this well, how to grieve, how to be sorrowful, but we need to learn. We need to walk with each other. We need to allow for some bitter days of the soul. We need to allow for people's hearts to be broken and not just have one giant pep rally all the time. We need to allow for crying out to God. We need to recognize the the brokenness in people's lives and listen and weep and mourn. There will be seasons that that will be the right response because of where life is going. We need to be slow with cliches and quick to be present, even if that's like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I can't change anything, but I'm here. I'm present. Echoes of this passage in Esther are in Joel. And I think Joel gives us a, a clear understanding like how, how do we grieve? Listen to Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, you're grieving? Return to me. Don't run from God. Run to him. Return to me with all your heart. And you want to bring your fasting? You want to bring your weeping? God sees those tears. You want to bring your mourning? And your heart? Rend your hearts. Not just your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. We need to turn to the Lord. I wonder if an important question for you to ask, even maybe this afternoon or maybe to talk over with with a friend later on this week, is like, how, how do we grieve? How do I handle the bitter things in life? What do I do with that? Does it, does it make me go from God or does it make me go to God? There's so much more we could say, but I want to dig further into this story. We see on the part of Esther some initial reluctance to act, some initial reluctance to act, and we we see that in several verses here. So it doesn't start with reluctance. As, as. Esther becomes aware of what's going on with Mordecai, so she's notified in verses four and five of what's going on. She's connected to him and it says the text says she's deeply distressed. Well we don't know, is she deeply distressed about this edict that means her people all get destroyed, or is she deeply distressed about Mordecai? It seems like she's just concerned about Mordecai. She sends garments for the purpose of like, removing sackcloth. I mean, that's a good answer to everything, right? Get some new clothes. It'll make it all better. So she, she has the, the clothes sent to him. She seems somewhat isolated in the palace. Like, what, what's going on? Does she even know what's going on? Does she even know that, that the king has issued a decree that essentially is her death warrant? Does she even know that? Or is she so isolated in the house with the king's wife and the king's concubines? We, we don't know how much she knows, but. Mordecai refuses to take the clothes, and she wants to know why. In verse 5, she says she wants to learn what this was and why this was. Mordecai's like, you want to know why? You want to know why I'm making a public spectacle of myself? Have you not heard? There's an exact sum of money. He, he gets the amount, so he's not dealing in theory, he's not dealing in like theoretical issues, he's dealing with exact facts. Here's the exact sum of money that the king has been bribed with to just make the the people of God, the Jewish people, go away. it's It's no theory that this might happen. Reality is going in this direction. If you don't believe me, here's a copy of the written decree issued in your town, Esther, in Susa. For the destruction of your people." Mordecai says, go show this to Esther. Go explain it to her. Go command her. It's the word. Go command her to go to the king. You tell her. So this messenger, I I don't know how easy it was to be like the deliverer of all these messages going back and forth. You go tell her to beg for the king's favor to plead with your, plead for your people. This is, this is what you need to do, Esther. Implied in this is that Esther owes it to her people to do this. This is her responsibility. Mordecai's commanding her to act. And Esther gets that message. She fires back. Like, you go tell Mordecai some things. Like maybe Mordecai has forgotten something. So let me educate Mordecai. This is what everyone knows. This is what all the king's servants and all the people know. Did you forget something, Mordecai? That if you go into the inner court without being called according to law, you will be put to death. I'm going to just take a moment and think about if she were to go into the king's court, you know what she would be asking the king to do? What effectively she would be saying is, King, I know you're really proud of your decrees. Because it seems like multiple pages in this book are the decrees of the king going out in every province, every province, every province. The king's so proud of his decrees. And what she is effectively saying is, yeah, but on this one you missed it. What a dumb decree to decree the death of your wife. Maybe we ought to revisit your decrees, king. So Esther's saying, why don't you go tell Mordecai that? Oh, and if you think like there's this like easy connection that I have because I'm the queen, there's this romantic relationship. I haven't seen him in 30 days. Just knowing what we know about this king, I think he's probably had other women. Esther says, I haven't seen him in 30 days. Where is Esther in this? Should she throw away what she's gotten? I mean, she's a refugee. She's been in exile. Should she just throw all that away? What is she being asked to do? What should she do with her position? And again, I, I pause here to say it's one thing to evaluate what Esther should do with her position. I actually want to press in further and ask, what does God require of my life? What does re- God require of you? Does God make any requirements of you? Does God have any demands on how you should live your life? Does God have any expectation with the air he's given you to breathe that you should do anything for him? Is there anything? Is there any demands he makes of your life? Or is it all like, no, you just do things your way? Does God have any demands? So again, we can look at Esther, but we ought to look at like, our own lives. What should obedience to him look like? what has God given us? How should it be used? The position of influence, the position of privilege, the the position of education, how should that be used? Should it be only used for your personal safety, your personal comfort? Is that the only reason that God gave you like all of that? Is it just for you to use to make your life a little bit cozier? Is that what it's all about? I'm not sure of what was giving Esther reluctance. We just know that she was like, just make sure you tell Mordecai this. We don't know why. I don't, I don't assume to know why. I mean, perhaps she was just apathetic. Perhaps she could care less. Perhaps, you know, well, whatever happens now, I don't care. Perhaps she was cynical, like, ah, you really don't. The king's going to do what the king's going to do. <laughs> what does it matter? Maybe she's just cautious. Cautious Esther, like, I'm not so sure. Maybe she's fearful. Maybe she's selfish and just like, I don't even want to think about them. I'm going to think about me. I don't know what she is, but I know all of those tendencies are present in my own heart all too often. When God is calling me to live a life of abandon to him, sometimes by my actions I'm showing, like, I don't really care. Or I'm showing, like, it really won't make a difference. Or I'm too afraid of what it might mean to step out. I'm too afraid of what it might mean for relationships or for values or for the stuff I like or for all this. I'm too, I'm too afraid. I'm too selfish to like say, God, my life is in your hands. Here I am as a living sacrifice to you. But we're called to be stewards of this life God's given us. All of us, all of us are called to live this life For God's glory, that is the demand he makes. Jesus would make it like very, very clear. And it wasn't an easy message to hear then. It's not now. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Jesus would say this to you, to me. Everyone loses their life. Everyone, 100% of us, lose our lives. You can either lose it for the sake of Jesus in the gospel, in God's will being done through you. Or you can lose it. You can lose it chasing after things that are going to burn up because they're so incon- inconsequential for eternity. You can lose your life that way. Jesus said those are the two options of losing your life. I mean, Esther could say, like, this "In my fault, it's not my problem— You could say that. I just really don't feel like giving my life to this or sacrificing deeply. Or you could seek the glory of God with everything that he has given you. What exactly does God require of you? One of the reasons I love being a part of a multi-generational church is I get to see on every level of life people who follow Jesus making decisions that have a cost and they're glad to do it and often often like a lot of a lot of people don't see it so a couple days of the week I'll pull into the church parking lot and I'll see ladies in the church gathering gathering bread, and they take it from a bakery. They don't. The bakery doesn't need it anymore, but, but people that are hungry need it, and they package it up, and they take it, and they deliver. In the name of Jesus, they're just trying in one way, one small way, to show the love of Jesus Christ. I see people that are attending with great pain. It's, it's a chore for them even to get to church. It's a chore for them to get here, to sing, to pray, to, to worship with God's people. I watch as there are those that are in the stage of life where they're caring for aging parents, and they're doing so not because it's, not because it's easy, but because they love and they're willing to sacrifice deeply. I, I think of a student right now in Malaysia who is sharing the message of Jesus Christ. I think of another student that is going to East Asia in a, in a couple of days. To share the love of Christ for a year, using a year of her life. I think of those that are opening their homes. I think of the the four families right now, and there may, Lord willing, there will be more to come. But four families that have opened up their home to foster care, so that kids in Delaware might have a place. I think of those that are in the nursery that are watching those little kids that have been welcomed into our church family. I think of those that are so generous with their money, they give it away. They give it away because they know there are things that matter for eternity. I think of those that hold each other accountable having hard conversations when it'd just be easier to like, you go your way, I go my way, but instead they lean into relationships and friendships that make us more like Jesus. I think of those that will show up every every day teaching kids for VBS. I think of those that are welcoming singles and widows and widowers into their lives, recognizing that it's not just biological family that matters, it's the spiritual family, it's the church family that matters. I see this every week. I see how God makes demands of our lives, and I see believers, I see brothers and sisters say, Lord, it's not my life. It's yours. Use it to bring yourself glory. We think of what we might lose, but then you might gain some things. You might gain the life you were born to live. I love the quote from Jim Elliott. It's it's not new probably to many of you. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think it'd be worth you spending some time maybe even this afternoon, maybe talking it over with a friend, what does God demand of our lives? What does God demand of us? As we continue on in Esther, Esther chapter 4, Esther gets kind of boxed into a few limited options as the story progresses. Verses 12 and 14, I, I don't mean like God's limited. God's never boxed in. But Esther certainly feels it, and Mordecai is willing to press in here. So he says in verse 13, you think you're going to escape this, Esther? It's like that storm's coming, and it's coming over your house. Don't think just because you're in the king's palace, someone won't, won't rat you out. Like, don't, don't think that's the way this is going to come down. And also, Esther, don't think that your silence and the... the your silence will prevent relief and deliverance. Actually, it may come from another place. It may come from another source. And, and Esther, you may be like a, a person just watching the train go, go by. God will deliver. I don't know. I mean, does Mordecai know Genesis 12 says the seed of Abraham will be blessed and all the families of the earth will be blessed? Does he have confidence in those prom- promises of God? I don't know. But he does say, if, if you don't step up, like all of this isn't going to get derailed. But he does say, you and your father's house will be a footnote in history. You'll perish. I think Mordecai understands something. I don't know all he understands, but I think he understands something about God's sovereignty. And God being in control of everything is never meant to be a demotivator to act. I think sometimes we get confused on that. Like if God's in control of everything, then what responsibility do I have? And we have like all kinds of responsibility to act. There seems to be these interrelated themes, God's work and our choices. Deliverance will come. but Esther, you maybe meant to play a role. Who knows if this might be why you came to the kingdom at this, you came to your royal position. Maybe this is the timing. You could have been born any other time, but maybe this was the timing. It's just interesting. Like this would be a perfect place. I think if I were writing scripture, this is the time you'd bring up God's name 15 times. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Esther. But God's name again, it's like the magic eye, isn't it? You see him there, but you don't see it. It's not explicitly mentioned. Mordecai never mentions obedience to God or his will in this passage. But I don't think that has to stop us from asking how can we understand God's will at work in our lives? How can we understand God's will at work in our lives? Certainly when you're younger, you feel this press like to discover God's will, to find God's will. What does God want me to do? That's a huge discussion. More time than we have today. But I I do want to offer some thoughts that I think as I read Esther, it's hard not to share some of these things that I see in this story of Esther. It's not all that needs to be said about the subject. but, But how do we understand God's will? I think we understand God's will better as... Let me just say first, like, we've run out of other options. When you come to a place where you're wondering what to do and there really are no other options, like Esther, at least there are no other good ones. Sometimes this helps us discern what God's will is. It's no fun to run out of options. Our culture, like, pushes the opposite direction. There are a bazillion majors you could have if you want to go to college. I I love the power and control of going to a grocery store and seeing about 15 varieties of Doritos. Doritos. I can get whatever Dorito I want. if I don't like that one, I'll get another one. And I can keep trying for the rest of the month until I find something. I I like the power. I like the options. I like that I could do it this way, this way, this way. I like that Amazon, I can buy just about everything. And with Prime, it'll be to my doorstep pretty soon. I love it. But often my life doesn't work with this a, a bazillion good options. Often God's will works as some of those options just get kind of cut off. Well, I guess I can't do that. Well, I guess I'm not working there. I guess that opportunity isn't available to me. I guess I can't do that. And as uncomfortable as it makes us, it's still okay. God isn't wringing his hands because you're out of a million good options. I think we understand God's will also as we trace a a trajectory of our life. Someone was helpful in, in letting me see this this week because often our lives don't just come like so random. There's something that God is doing. There's a story he is writing and it's this and that and this and that. And we begin to look past and we see, okay, God was working here and here and here. And that's the way it is with Esther, right? God was moving her into a position for such a time as this. And when we began to look, and say, look at where my life has gone. Look at the tragedy. Look at the victory. Look at my talents. Look at my personalities. Look at my skills. Look at my education or my lack of education. We begin to see what God is doing. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And then I learned from Esther, sometimes we have to decide on a course of action that still feels pretty uncertain. Rarely, do I have like 100% certainty on decisions, even like big ones? I've never walked out and seen letters in the sky that said, here's the decision to make. God's never loaded up my inbox with this is the option. Did you notice in Esther, did you notice kind of the uncertainty? I mean, Mordecai's saying, who knows? Who knows? And Esther says, if I perish, if, if, if I perish, I perish. Like there's uncertainty there. Sometimes that's all we have after we've gotten wise counsel, after we've prayed, we decide on a course of action. And aren't you glad to know that God, again, is not handcuffed by our uncertainty? Well, this passage leads us to see a big decision for Esther. Verses 15 to 17, she's got a decision. What should she do? Did you notice how Esther has changed? So, when we're introduced to Esther in the first part of the book, she's basically at the whim of everybody else. The king wants her, the the officials call her, Mordecai says, Do this, do that, do this, do that. But now things have changed by the end of the chapter. I mean, verse 17 says she's ordering Mordecai. She tells Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews. And hold a fast on my behalf. She says, I'll fast. My young women will fast. I'll go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I mean, there's different speculation. There's some that say, boy, that's words of courage there. And it's like, oh, that's words of like, she's not sure. They're words of doubt. I I don't know. They are words of determination, aren't they? Like, I, I will go forward with this. I think we can learn from this. Esther has this big decision in it. It feels even the way the story's written, so well written. It feels like this is a superhero story. And then we watch the movie. Person comes to this crisis and like, do they, do they want to be the hero or the heroine? Do they want to step up? Oh, but it'll cost them so much. Maybe they just want to play it safe. But then they, they make the big decision, I'm going all in, no turning back. That's the way the story feels or this moment of great courage and bravery. See, on the battlefield, someone decided I'm, I'm going to lead the charge or whatever. This is such a story of big decisions. But if I'm honest, when I try to import Curtis into this, into this story, I feel like I don't, I've never had a decision as big as Esther's with like millions of people on the line. It probably doesn't surprise you to know that I've never approached royalty with a request. Not one time. I've never gotten on some charter jet to, to stop a civil war in Sudan. So Esther has this big moment, big decision to make, and yet I think so much of our lives are are small decisions. And so here's the question I want to ask. I I see Esther's big decision. I think we can learn a lot from that. I want to ask, is God at work in the small decisions of my life? Because there are thousands of those. I don't minimize. So this is what, I mean, God may call some of you to impact a million people. God bless you. God may call you to impact thousands of people. That may be the influence of your life. And I I praise God, I would love if he raised up people that had that kind of importance and worth and you made good decisions like Esther made. Courageous decisions, brave decisions. But what I do know is that all of us are going to have a thousand small decisions every single day. You're going to have the decision to persevere when you really want to quit. You're going to have the decision to hang in there for a job that doesn't change the world but it feeds the family and it's a good job and you're going to have the decision am I going to show up and am I going to serve others and serve the Lord in this capacity? Are you going to be faithful in the small decisions? Are you going to be faithful to trust God when life gets painful? Are you going to be faithful in you just fill in the blank. Are you going to become a patient person Are you going to grow in your self-control? Are you going to make the thousand small decisions to grow in self-control instead of just doing whatever feels good at the moment? Are you going to decide not to complain, not to grow bitter, but to be grateful and content? Are you going to be that kind of witness for Jesus Christ? Are you going to make a small decision to be pure in your mind and pure in your thoughts so that you can honor the Lord, bless her, the pure in heart. Those are the ones that see God. Are you going to make a thousand small decisions for that to be the case? Are you going to do right even when no one's looking? Are you going to be a little bit bolder in evangelism instead of just like wimping out on a conversation about who you trust in and why you trust in him? Are you going to ask for forgiveness, such a small decision Or are you going to be prideful in that moment and say, I don't need to ask for forgiveness for anything they did wrong? You see, life is made up of these thousand small decisions. We could get blinded by the big one that we make. Occasionally, once a decade. And forget that your life is impacted by a thousand small ones. It's required in stewards that we've found trustworthy. And Jesus did remind us, right, that faithful in little things... I'll give you bigger things. Be faithful in those. Don't underestimate the value that God places on these just common, ordinary things. I I know Esther's scale. I know when she identified with God's people, it meant the empire was, was spared, at least the Jews in that empire. I wonder if you would make a small decision to identify with God's people in this day. In this time, to identify with God's people, the church. I mean, we have meaningful membership. It's not just so that we have a role in a, an archive on some database somewhere. Let's say, I'm, I'm part of this people. I'll identify with the people of God that meet at Ogletown in a tangible way. I'll identify with God's people again and again. The small decisions. This story just presses us to ask, like, deep questions of ourselves. At the same point, as I read the story, I'm so inspired. I I love, Esther 4 is such a hinge, isn't it? Like, everything else builds to this moment, and then, like, Esther decides she is, her life is different. I love it. She was weak, but she's willing to act and even suffer. She's courageous, ready to make a decision, not just for her own comfort and safety, She doesn't let the past or present circumstances define her. She's had a lot of difficulties, but here it seems to turn. I find so much encouraging, especially about Esther, and inspirational. But I want to ask another question, and that is this. Do you see how this story prepares you not just to look at Esther, but see someone that's greater than Esther that this Bible tells a story of? I'm inspired by Esther. But I've been transformed by someone greater than Esther. I, I, I love that Esther was weak, but I see in Jesus like a choice to become weak. A choice to become poor. A choice to give up the armies that he could have had at his disposal. A choice to give up the riches that he could have rightfully had. A choice to give all those up he chose to be weak. He chose to be vulnerable. He identified with his people. He's made in the likeness of, of humans. He suffers for sin. He prays He prays something similar to Esther, but, it, but it's different, isn't it? He prays, "Not my will, but yours be done." And that isn't like a like, well, who knows what will happen, not with Jesus, not when it comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, not when it comes to the cross. He knew he knew what he was going to. It wasn't a, if I perish. He knew he was going to perish in an earthly sense. He knew his body would be destroyed. He knew he'd be mocked. He knew he'd be made fun of. I'm inspired by Esther. But when I look at who Esther gives us a glimpse to, and I recognize that Jesus Christ does that for me. He does that for you. He does so out of love. He does it to reconcile us to God. He's destroyed in his flesh so that we might live think that that is more than inspirational that can change your life that is the offer of life to you real life the life you're made for he calls on you to trust in him to live your life for him not for yourself i hope you've been inspired by esther i'd love it to see our church do great things courageous things for god I hope, and I pray, you've been transformed by this one that is even greater than Esther. This one, Jesus Christ. Can I ask you to bow your head? We ask the Lord to... Like, I believe when we open God's Word, He speaks. So, we ask Him, Lord, what what do you want me to do? What do you want me to change? What do you want me to be? Maybe you do have the big decision. Maybe you have some smaller decisions. Maybe you're grieving and you ask, "Like, well, what do I need to do with my grief? Lord, I'm returning to you. In a moment, we'll sing a song that's a prayer asking the Lord to restore our soul.